Ezekiel chapter 18. I want to read to you the whole chapter, and then we're going to take some time to break it down. And depending on how fast we can get, go through these things, um, I may have to tonight give you a lot of quotes and say, write this down, look at it later. Like this, write this down, look at it later, because we have a lot to cover from this chapter. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 through 32 says, The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, and if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between men and man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. If he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though himself did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, depresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends at interest, takes profit, shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees, and he does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules and walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say... Why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked person turns away from all of his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right... He shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I, have I any pleasure in the death of the, excuse me, the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered. For the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? 
Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. <clears throat> now, as you're going to see here, God... Does God seem a little worked up here about what's going on? Well, you see, at the beginning of this chapter, God begins clearing up a misconception about himself. In verse 2, when it says, what do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? That word you in the Hebrew is in the plural. He's speaking not to Ezekiel. He's speaking to the nation. And then the, the Israelites had this proverb, and they have the proverb right there. The proverb was this, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, but the children's teeth were set on edge. In other words, what happened, what the fathers did affected the children. <clears throat> and so what they were saying, though, using that proverb was this, that God is not just, God judges the righteous along with the wicked. As you know, at this point, because of Israel's sin, the nation of Israel has been being judged. They've been taken in captivity in waves. And as God has been saying, he's going to be wiping out the land of Israel, destroying Jerusalem. And they were just saying, God's not just. God's not fair. He, in judging everybody at the same time, is judging the righteous people along with the wicked people. And therefore, God is not just. And God gets upset and he says to them, I don't want you saying this proverb anymore because that's not how it is. <clears throat> as you see here, look what he says in verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. And so what I want you to see is I'm going to take you back and just show you briefly that the scripture all along had already clearly said that that is not who God was. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that God judges the righteous for the sins of the wicked. Although that's what they were thinking. We're going to get to why they thought that in just a little bit. But I want to show you first scripturally that the scripture had already shown them very clearly that that is not who God was. He doesn't judge the righteous for the sins of the wicked. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 24. <clears throat> Way back at the beginning of the nation of Israel as they're heading into the promised land and God's given them the law, reminding them of the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, look at verse 16. It can't be any more clear. It says, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Now, if you remember correctly, when we go to the story of the nation of Israel going into Jericho and in the promised land, they defeat Jericho. But God had said that they weren't to take any of the spoil. The spoil was all to be dedicated to the Lord and given to God. And this one man, Achan and his family, hid some stuff. You remember that? And they went to defeat the next town, Ai, and they weren't able to. And Joshua says, how come? And God says, that's because you've got some people that broke what I commanded. And they go through the whole process of finding out who it was. And it comes down to this man, Achan, and his family. And they were all put to death. And we would assume, we have probably incorrect, incorrectly like the nation of Israel, that the children were put to death because of their father's sin. But look at what God says in his law here. Children shall not be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So according to the scriptures, what do we know? Those children of Achan were put to death because of their dad's sin? Not according to the law of God. When God said that they were all to be put to death, they were all put to death for their own sin. Go to 2 Kings chapter 14. 2 Kings chapter 14, look at verses 1 through 6. It says, In the second year of Joash... 
the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoiadin of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not like David his father. He did in all things as Joash his father had done, but the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. And as soon as the royal power was firmly in his hand, he struck down his servants who had struck down the king, his father. But he did not put to death the children of the murderers, according to what was written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sin. So even in this instance... The king understood that the children were not to be put to death for what their fathers had done because the law of God had been already clearly declared that children were not to be put to death for the sins of their fathers. Each one was to be put to death for their own sin. So let me ask you, as the nation of Israel has been saying, God is not just that father ate the sour grapes and the children's teeth were set on edge and he's judging everybody. The sins of the wicked are now being, we're being judged. The righteous are being judged for the sins of the wicked. Was that who God was? Not according to the scripture. And if you remember, go back. We're not going to turn there, but write it down. Look at it later on in Genesis chapter 18, verses 22 through 33. Genesis 18, 22 through 33. As you know, God has just showed up to meet with Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And he tells him, you're going to have a child this time next year. And as he goes on from there with the two men, the angels that were with him, they went from there to Sodom to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19 of Genesis. But God says, shall I hide this thing from my friend? Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm going to do? And so God lets him know I'm heading, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah has come before me and I'm heading there to destroy it. Abraham, knowing full well that he's got family there, says, hey, um, God, it's not like you to destroy the righteous along with the wicked. If there are 50 righteous people, would you still destroy the city? God says, if there's 50, I won't. Abraham says, how about 45? God says, I won't. How about 40? I won't. 30. And as Abraham keeps going back and forth, he keeps saying this over and over. Far be it from you to judge the righteous with the wicked. It's not who you are. And of course, God says, look, if there's 10 righteous in the city, I won't destroy that city. Oh, but keep in mind, we'd already seen last time we were together in Ezekiel chapter 14. Remember, God had said if he's decided that he's going to bring judgment on a nation, even if Noah, Daniel and Job were in that city, they would be spared because of their righteousness. But they wouldn't stop what he's going to do. So the scripture is very, very clear, folks, that God's heart is he judges each one according to their sin. So we have to deal with this question then. Where did the Jews get this mindset that God was unjust and he judged the wicked, the righteous along with the wicked? Oh, and at the same time, why did they have that mindset? And so what I want to do is I want to, before I get to show you where they got it, I'm going to show you why they were saying that first. Go to Job chapter 40. Job chapter 40, look at verses 1 through 8. As you're going there, let me just remind you that as awesome as Job started off in chapters 1 and 2 by saying, naked I came into this world, naked I'll return, and he worshiped God and he didn't charge God with wrongdoing. If you keep reading, Job begins to start saying that it's not fair. I'm righteous. I haven't done anything. I don't know why this is happening. I wish I could talk to God, but who can talk to God? And even if I did get a face-to-face -face with God, how unfair is that? He's God, and I'm a man, and who can argue with him? And I just don't think it's fair. 
Well, God shows up and listen to what God says to him in chapter 40, verse 1. The Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I'm of a small, of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand in my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Why was Job, according to God, why was Job saying God was in the wrong and that God was not right? So he would think to make himself appear right. That's what he's saying here. God says, you're going to condemn me to make yourself look good? Folks, those of you that had kids, have you ever found them doing something they weren't supposed to do and you confronted them on it? Wasn't their first reaction to point out what the sins of the brothers and the sisters were doing? Or even at the same time, sometimes as your kids get older, they don't point out the brothers and sisters. They'll then turn and say, well, you did. Remember that? Because we're, we're not perfect either. And you tell your kid you did something wrong, and they'll say, well, remember when you ran that red light? Why do they do that? They bring you down to lift themselves up. Justify themselves. We see it. It goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? The Bible says that God had made Adam and there was no female at the time for him and he had the animals come by and no helper was found suitable for him. And so as Adam's naming all these animals, he realizes, man, there's, even the hippo's got a girlfriend, you know. Where's mine? And God blesses him with what he'd already planned to bless him with. And when Adam wakes up and he sees Eve, he says, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. In other words, she looks like me. And he was so excited. But the moment that he sinned, what does he do? This woman you gave me. In other words, I wouldn't have done this if you hadn't have given me this woman. I was fine. Folks, it's in all of us. So first off, why? By the way, Eve then blames the snake. Why were the Jews saying that God wasn't just? That he was Judging the righteous along with the wicked, first and foremost, it's because they wanted to justify themselves. They were making, saying God was not good to make themselves look better. It's in all of us. It's in all of us. But I want to show you from Scripture, because I'm going somewhere with this. There's something kind of important we really need to look at tonight. I want to show you from Scripture where they got this misconception. I want to show you that this misconception they had about God came from God's Word. Go back to Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, we see when God gives the Ten Commandments, this is what he says. He says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or in the earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God says, I'm a jealous God, and I'll visit the iniquity of the fathers to the children, 
to the third and the fourth generation. In and of itself, it sure looks like he's saying, I'm going to punish the kids for what the fathers do, right? Doesn't it kind of read that way? Go to, yeah, it does. Go to, go to Exodus 34. Go to Exodus 34. Look at verses 6 and 7. This is where Moses says to God, look, I'd love to see your glory. I'd like to, I want to see you. God says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to hide you in this cleft of a rock, put my hand over you, and let you see my backside, because you couldn't handle all of me. You'd die if you saw me. And as he goes by in chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So here God says it again. Here God says it again. Now, what's interesting to me is we get all focused on visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and we missed first off the whole first part. Look at what God says about himself that we totally ignore. The Lord a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. I mean, that's a pretty cool description of him too, isn't it? But we all jump to that section where it says, but I'm not going to, by no means, I'm going to clear the guilty. I'm going to judge. I'm going to take the iniquity of the fathers and have it affect the children, the third and fourth generation. Let me go to one more place. Go to Jeremiah chapter 15. Jeremiah chapter 15, look at verses 1 through 4. This was spoken in the hearing of most of the people that Ezekiel was talking to. Because remember, Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesied in similar time periods. Jeremiah began before Ezekiel did. But a lot of the people that were in Babylon under Ezekiel's preaching had already been in Jerusalem under Jeremiah's preaching. And through Jeremiah, God said to those people before they were taken into captivity in chapter 15, look at verses 1 through 4, and look at what he says. <clears throat> he said, The Lord said to me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight, let them go. And when they ask you, Where shall we go? You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Those who are for pestilence to pestilence, those who are for the sword to the sword, and those who are for famine to famine, and those who are for captivity to captivity. I will appoint over them four kinds of destroyers, declares the Lord, the sword to kill, the dogs to tear, the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. And I'll make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. God says, I'm going to destroy them and send them out, have them, have them be killed or scattered because of what Manasseh did. Doesn't that kind of read? That God is judging them for what someone else did? Folks, this is where I'm going tonight, and I really want you to hear me. This is why it is so important for us, especially in these last days, where people are using Scripture to teach false doctrines, that we know the whole of Scripture. The only way you can get a correct theology, which is an understanding of God, is to know the whole of Scripture. Because if I wanted to, I could have spent all night just using those three passages I just showed you, and I probably could convince most of you that God would judge the children for what the fathers did. And I could show you from those verses, and if you didn't know what we'd already looked at, you probably would have thought, I mean, Jim said it. 
It must be true. And you would have bit. And there are people out there today that are teaching things that do not line up with Scripture, the whole of Scripture, but they can take a verse here and a verse there and convince you from Scripture that this is who God is, and it's not who He is. And the only way you'll know is to let the whole of Scripture be how you build your theology. So how do we deal with these passages then? Well, this much we know. God will never judge someone and send them to hell for someone else's sin. Oh, but, and I think you know the answer to this. Are people affected that are part of your family when you sin? If a father makes a sinful choice to cheat on his wife, will that have an effect on his wife and kids? If you choose to embezzle money from your company or steal people's retirements, will that have an effect on people? Keep in mind, God says, I will no, and by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity, it's going to have an effect. And I keep track of all the people you affected in your sin. And I think the Bible is also teaching that on the day of judgment, those people that are going to be judged for their sin will not only be judged for their sin, but also for the iniquity that carried on to the descendants behind them. Yes, sir. Exactly. He said, Did this man, was this man more blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? Neither. It wasn't tied to that. That's not what the Bible teaches. And that's what I want you to understand is God is very clear that when someone is sent to hell, they're sent to hell for their own sin. By the way, you hopefully do understand that if you're able to keep the whole law, James 2.10 and stumble at just one point, you're guilty in the eyes of God as if you broke it all. See, we still got this wrong mindset that there's some people that are, you know, pretty good people. I mean, they do a little bit. No, the soul that sins, it shall die. And so what had happened was, is these people had taken things that God had said, twisted them to make it seem like God was bad and they were good. That's why through this passage, as you've seen, God keeps saying over and over and over, no, you're the ones who are not just. By saying this proverb, you're the ones who aren't just. By saying this proverb, you're the ones who are saying that I'm a bad guy when it's not true. And so write this down, look at it later on. Go to Psalm 19, verses 1 through 14. Later on, look at Psalm 19, verses 1 through 14. It talks about how the heavens declare the glory of God, but then he talks for a whole big section there, starting in verse 7, about the law of God and how it's right and true and pure and just. And it, it, it's awesome description of the word of God. And I want to just challenge you. Please, 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 when you study the scriptures, don't take a verse here or a verse there. Use the whole of scripture to build your theology. And that will keep you from being tossed to and fro by every wind of teaching. That's why we need to let our pastors stop having to do all this counseling and all this administration and all this stuff, making sure the doors are open and the lights are on. When the Bible says they're supposed to be feeding on the Word of God so that they can feed and minister to you the Word of God and equip you for the work of the ministry so that you're the one who are out there telling people about Jesus. You're the one visiting people in the hospitals. You're the one who are 
doing the work of the ministry as the body builds itself up in love. And the passage says in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, he talks about how he gave us some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Don't miss this. So that we will be no longer infants tossed to and fro by every wind of teaching and cunning and craftiness of deceitful scheming. But we will all grow up into him who is the head. And the body will then build itself up in love as each part does its work. We've got to let our pastors spend their time in word and in, the pr- and in prayer so that they can then feed us the whole of Scripture, not a verse here or a verse there. And then we've got to then understand that as he, God uses these men to feed us the word, we're then to put the word into practice and the gifts that he's given us and to meet each other's needs. One of the problems we've gotten to this way is, is most pastors today don't spend a whole lot of time in the Bible. They're too busy with all this other stuff. They're usually cramming for their Sunday message on Saturday night. You'd be amazed how many are cramming on Saturday night for their Sunday message. And so, folks, I just want to challenge you. The Bible says in the last days there's going to be doctrines taught by demons. Oh, and by the way, does Satan know the Scriptures? Yes, he does. He knows them better than you and me. And when he even met with Jesus to tempt Jesus, he quoted Psalm 91. He quoted Scripture. Oh, he twisted it. It didn't match the whole of Scripture. He took a passage, twisted it, but Jesus knew better. Unfortunately, most of us today don't know better, and the world out there is buying into a whole lot of lies about God because the preacher said it, not the Scriptures. So what I want to do is I want to take you back to chapter 18, and I'm going to give you a brief overview of that whole section, verses 5 and following. All right? Because of where I want to go tonight, what we need to cover I'm just going to give you a, a brief overview. In verses 5 through 13, proving his point, God says, If a father is righteous, but his son is wicked, the father will live, but the son will die. That's pretty much what verses 5 through 13 say. If the father is righteous, but the son is wicked, the father will live, but the son will die. Now, in verses 14 through 18, it says, But if that wicked son has a son, a grandson, and he lives righteously, the grandson will live. And his father will die because of his sin. He just says, you got a righteous dad? Awesome, that guy's going to live. But he has a son that's unrighteous? That unrighteous son's going to die. If that unrighteous son gives birth to a son, and that one's righteous, he'll be saved, and the wicked one will still die. And then verses 19 through 20, what I I already told you, God then points out that they're the ones who are saying that the righteous should die for the father's sins by their incorrect proverb. They were saying it, not God. In verses 21 through 24, God then goes on and shows them that the state in which someone finishes his or her life is what God will judge them for. Did you catch that? In verses 21 through 24, he says, but if a wicked person turns from their wickedness and starts living righteously, they'll live. If a righteous person turns from their wickedness and starts living wickedly, they'll die. So what he's showing us now is, it's how you end your life that ultimately what God will judge. All right? Don't miss verses 23 and 32. 23, God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not that rather that he should turn it from his way and live? Did you catch that? Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? No. My real heart desires that the wicked will turn from their way and live. Don't miss that. And then, of course, he answers the same question. But he says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. By the way, don't miss that. 
In the first verse, 23, he says, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Don't I have my, isn't my real desire that they would turn from their wickedness and live? But in verse 32, he says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. So turn and live. Did anybody catch it? He says to the wicked, turn and live. And then he says, I don't have pleasure in the death of anybody. So everybody, turn and live. What does that mean? I got, you don't see it? If he says again, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So wicked people turn and live. And then he says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. So everybody turn and live. What's he saying? Everybody's wicked. Don't miss that. We get all caught up in, well, is someone righteous by what they do? We're going to blow that all up from the scriptures in just a second. But it's been there the whole time. He says, everybody's wicked. Isn't Paul, when he says in Romans chapter 3, there's no one righteous, no, not one. He's quoting from the Old Testament. All along, the scripture had said, there's no one righteous. So we've got to deal with this question. We've got to deal with this question. Why then does this passage seem to teach that righteousness comes from obeying the law? I mean, doesn't it read that way? If a person's righteous and doesn't do these things, then they'll live. If they're wicked and do these things, then, but if they're wicked but turn from that and become righteous, then they'll live. Doesn't it read like righteousness comes from doing the right thing? Why? Why, why, why? with all of the understanding we have on this side of the cross and the indwelling Holy Spirit and the full knowledge of the Old and New Testament, why does God say, live righteously and you'll live? Very good. He said to show that you can't. I want you to see from the scriptures, I'm not, because of time we have to keep moving, but I want you to go back and write this down, look at it later on in Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 23. The scripture says in Luke 18, verses 18 through 23, that Jesus was on the earth and there was this rich young ruler. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus tell him to do? No, he doesn't tell him to sell everything first. Most people think that's the first thing he says. The first thing he says to him is what? No, keep the law. You go back and look at the story. The man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We're all sitting there going, oh, tell him to just believe in Jesus, just to believe in him, just to, to pray this prayer and put his faith in Christ. No, Jesus doesn't do that. He says, keep the law. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Jesus. What are you doing? What are you doing, Jesus? I mean, go to Romans chapter three real quick. Maybe Jesus didn't know about this. Go to Romans chapter three. Romans chapter 3, look at verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Since through the law comes what? Oh, now we know why Jesus was telling him to go keep the law. Folks, I need to say something to you. We're out there trying to preach the good news. What is the good news? The good news is Jesus died to cover our what? Sins. Oh, but we got a problem. Most people don't think they have sin. 
If you were to ask most people on the street today, are, are you a sinner? <laughs> no, I'm a pretty good person. I've done a few things, but I don't need a savior. I'm a pretty good person. I can do a few things to make it right, or I don't think my wickedness is that wicked. I'm better than most. And I think for the most part, when the big guy weighs my, my good and my bad. So here we are telling everybody the good news, but they don't know the bad news. It's like my mechanic saying, I got good news. Your car repair is only going to cost $300. And I'm like, I didn't know it needed repair. I thought it was fine. You understand? Would I think that was good news that it was only going to cost 300 bucks if I thought my car was fine? Oh, but if I brought it in and said, hey, something's not right here. And I know it's broke. And then he says, hey, it's, I, it's only going to be 300. I'm going to think that's good news because I know my thing's broken. I'm thinking it's going to cost 1,000. He tells me 300. That's good news. But it's only good news if I understood the bad news first. We're out there telling the world, we got good news. Jesus died for your sin. And the world says, what sin? And so all through the scripture, all through the scripture, God has been showing throughout the Old Testament and the New that in order for a person to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, they have to first acknowledge their sin. And what was the purpose of the law? To show them they can't keep it. To show them they can't keep it. Oh, by the way, there's more to the law than that, though. Go to Romans chapter 5 and look at verse 20. The law came to do what, according to Romans 5.20? And he says, increase the trespass. I don't want you to miss this. The law came to make us sin more, is what this passage really is saying. You say, how in the world does the law come to make me sin more? Well, let me give you another verse to write down and look at it later on. It's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56. Paul says this, the power of sin is the law. In other words, what fuels sin is the law of God. In other words, go to Romans chapter 7, and it'll make a whole lot more sense to you here. Paul's laying this whole foundation. He says in the beginning that everyone's guilty before God because of sin. There's no one righteous, not even one Jew and Gentile alike are equally sinful before God. In Romans chapter 7, look at what he says in verses 7 through 13. He said, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have even known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin Sorry, but Kemet came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it it killed me. So the law is holy, and commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, what he's saying is this. He says, I don't even know what coveting was till the law said, don't covet. And now all of a sudden, I had all this covetous desire. I understand this. You understand this. If you'd be walking down a sidewalk somewhere and you're just going through this neighborhood, you wouldn't even think half the time of stepping on someone's lawn. 
But if, buddy, they had all these signs that says, stay off my grass, what is your now inward desire? Yeah, exactly. I'm going to put a... You just want to, don't you? Years ago, when and it's hard to believe that it's, my daughter's about to graduate with her master's degree, but when we brought Nicole to UCF for her orientation, as they took us around the campus, we came into the center of the student building, and in the center of the campus UCF student building is this picture painting of, of Pegasus on the floor. And if anybody's ever been to UCF, they've got this velvet rope around the outside, and no one's allowed to step on Pegasus. There's a tradition at UCF that if a student steps on Pegasus before they graduate, something's going to happen and you won't be able to graduate. So they all avoid it. And to keep them from accidentally walking across it, there's this, like you see in a bank, velvet rope around it to keep everybody. Folks, I had no desire to step on Pegasus, but once they went into all this detail and orientation of nobody's allowed to step on it, everything in me wanted to go stand in the middle and say, so what? I hadn't even thought about it, but the law fuels sin. Why? Is the law bad? No. It's sin within us. Everything in us says, nobody's going to tell me what to do. And when God gave a commandment, it fuels that sin. Not only does the law show us we can't keep it, it also fires up that problem we have called sin already within us. The law was added so the trespass would increase. Why? Because sin was already there. But the Bible says it's not taken into account if you don't realize it. And the law came to show people, not only can you not keep it, it makes you not want to keep it. And so God in the Old Testament says, live righteous. Here are the laws, keep them perfectly and you'll live. And I guarantee you there are people that tried. And they realized, can't, can't. And it starts to open up our hearts to understanding our need. If I only can be righteous by keeping this law perfectly, what am I going to do? Because I can't keep it perfectly. Oh, guess what? I got good news. And it doesn't even cost $300. It's free. God knew this all along. And he set up a way where you can be declared righteous. But we're getting ahead of ourselves Go to Romans chapter 7, look at verses 4 through 6. Romans chapter 7, look at verses 4 through 6. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, we just talked about that, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now... We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is important because many Christians today still, without realizing it, even though they know they're forgiven and they're going to heaven when they die and God's guaranteed them eternity, they still think that they have to do things to get back in God's good graces. Anybody here still sin? Do you find yourself tempted to think when you've fallen into sin that now you've got to read your Bible a little bit more to get back? That you need to maybe give a little extra money to the church or do some good things or have a few more good days to outweigh that that's still there. And we need to understand that we are no longer bound by the law. We can't keep the law, never could keep the law. There's only one who kept the law, and that's Jesus. 
And now we live by the Spirit. And what God wants from us today is to lay our flesh on the altar, which means me trying to do something, and learn to live through the power of the Spirit that lives within me. And there are going to be days I do good. There are going to be days I don't do good. But when those days come that I don't do good, God doesn't want me to do law-type things to get right. He says, just get back to leaning on me. Just get back to leaning on me. Peter, do you love me more than these? I really do. Let's go then. Feed my sheep. He didn't say, then why'd you deny me? He didn't say, then why don't you do a couple of things to prove it? He just simply said, let's get going from here. Peter, do you really love me more than these? Lord, I really do. Let's get going. Feed my sheep. And the third time Jesus asked him, Peter, do you really love me more than these? And I love how Jesus had pulls the truth out of Peter. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. See, for years, I read it that Peter was trying to convince Jesus. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Oh, you know everything. You know that I love you. And all God says to us is, stop trying to prove to me how much you love me. Don't we do that? Don't we feel like we have to prove to God we love him? Folks, let me tell you something about God. He knows if you'll die for him tomorrow. He knows if you'll deny him tomorrow. He already knows how much you love him, more than you ever could even understand. Stop trying to prove to him you love him. By the way, that's what Peter did in that story where Jesus had risen from the dead and they were out fishing and couldn't catch any fish. Jesus stands on the shore and says, hey, how's that working out for you? They say, we're not catching anything. He says, throw it on the other side of the boat and you will. They do. John recognizes and says, that's the Lord. And the Bible says that Peter threw on his outer garment, jumped into the water, and started swimming to the shore. He wanted to be the first one to the shore because he had already denied that he knew Jesus. He wanted to prove to him that he loved him the most. And the Bible says they followed in the boat with the fish. Peter was busting fanny to be the first one to Jesus. And as Peter's saying, I want to show him I love him the most. I want to prove to him how much I love him. Jesus is the whole time saying, dude, you don't got to do that. You don't got to do that. Stop trying to prove to me how much you love me. I know how much you love me. I know how much you're going to love me tomorrow. The next day, I already see the finished product. So, folks, stop trying to earn God's approval by doing right things. And just rest in the fact that he who begin this good work will finish it. When you have a bad day or a bad afternoon, we want to beat ourselves up, don't we? I'm going to say something to you lovingly, but very firmly. When you beat yourself up, when you sin, it is the highest level of pride. It is the highest level of pride. Because you know what you're really saying when you beat yourself up when you sin? You're saying, I should never have done that. Oh, really? You're that good? You're that impressive? Oh, when I don't yield to the Spirit... I'm going to do that. When I sin, it's not me who's sinning. Paul said in Romans 7, it's sin living in me. And I didn't live by my new nature that I've been given. I started to live out of the old flesh. Thank God that's been put to death, and I'm not going to be judged for it. And so all God says is, Jim, you do love me, right? Lord, I do. You know. Okay, you know. And let's get going from here. So stop beating yourself up. Stop trying to be the first one to shore. You're going to have a day or two when you fall. Walk back in the spirit. Rest back again and say, Lord, I'm, I'm letting you have control here. 
Go back to chapter 18. There's something cool here that I think we'll have a little bit more time to develop than I had last night. I got preaching last night and really ran out of time. <clears throat> and in Ezekiel chapter 18, let's go back to the last verses, verses 30 through 32. You may not have noticed it, because I read it kind of quick, but God shows them what needs to be done in becoming righteous in verses 30 through 32. All along, he said, those who live righteously will be righteous. Of course, we know that we can't be righteous by living righteously. He, he hints at the fact that how you end is what you're really going to be judged for, not your wickedness. But if you turn from it, look at what he says in verses 30 through 32. He said, therefore, I'll judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you've committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die a house of Israel? So God says to him, here's what I want you to do. Repent, turn from your sins and cast them away from you. And then make yourself a new heart and a new spirit. By the way, is that possible? Without Christ, no. Exactly. Then why does God say to them, cast your sins away, make yourself a new heart and a new spirit? Folks, by the way, the answer is the exact same answer to the question I asked you earlier. Why does it, he have it read like they can be righteous by what they do? Right. But there's something more to it, though, here. Every time God gives us a command He's already shown us in the scriptures earlier how to meet that command, how to live it. And that's one thing you got to understand. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Throughout the Bible is what we call progressive revelation. And back in Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve had sinned, God began to preach the gospel. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you want a seminary word, it's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. God says to Satan, a seed of this woman, of Eve, is going to crush your head. Oh, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Now, we at this point don't know a whole lot more. All we know is that a descendant of Eve is going to kill Satan. Satan doesn't even know at this time who it is. But Eve gives birth to two boys. One's called Abel, one's called Cain. Abel's righteous, Cain's not. And what does Satan do? He thinks, oh, dip. This righteous dude might be the one. So what does he have Cain do? He has Cain kill him. All the way through the scripture, you'll see Satan for a while doesn't know who this one to be is yet. Remember, Satan gets his understanding, not because he's all knowledge, but he gets it in the same way we can from the word of God. When God speaks it, that's when Satan knows it then the Bible starts to show us more and more that, Abraham, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And through you and your descendants, all the people in the whole world will be blessed through you. So now we know now a little bit more this individual is going to come from the nation of Israel later on. And I'm skipping over a bunch of them. We see that the scripture says that he's going to come from the shoot of the stump of Jesse. Later on, we get a little bit more and we see that he's going to come from David. We then later on see in Isaiah chapter 9 that actually his name is going to be Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. 
We see a little bit more later on in Isaiah 53 that this individual is going to be bruised for everyone's transgressions. He's going to be crushed for their iniquities. And all the stuff we did wrong is going to be put on him. All the way through, God's been giving revelation and progressive revelation. Everything they needed to be able to do what he said had already been shown them. And I want you to see, when God says, cast away from you your transgressions, they had already heard those words. Go to the book of Micah. Now, in our Bibles, Micah is after Ezekiel, so we think that they they heard Micah's prophecy after But that's not the case. That's why we need to study the word of God. You see that Micah, if you do a study, you'll find out Micah prophesied prior to Ezekiel. Ezekiel's prophesying in the 500s. Micah prophesied in the 700s, which was earlier. As you know, in the BC, they counted down. In Micah chapter 7, look at verses 18 to the end of the chapter. God had already spoken through the prophet Micah. And God said, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And if you had been faithful to read the prophets and to know what God had said, when God says, cast away your sin, you would have said, I can't. But you said you would. And God says, good for you. Folks, all the way through the scriptures, even in the New Testament, God says things to us that really aren't for us to do. But if we knew the word, we'd know that they're for him to do. When the Bible says to the New, in the New Testament that we're to put off the old self and put on the new. Can you really do that? Or do we do that as we yield to the spirit of God? Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And then God says, here's some things I want you to do. But Lord, you already said that apart from you, I can't do it. He said, good for you. Good for you. You're listening. You see, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And many a person has run out to go work out their salvation with fear and trembling, but they didn't keep reading. Verse 13 says, for it's God who works in you both to will, the desire, and to act according to his good purpose. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16, it's God who will establish us in every good work and deed and word. It's God who does this. And, oh, by the way, when he says, make for yourself a new heart and a new spirit, David had already written in Psalm 51 many years before. What did he say? Create in me a clean heart, oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. God, you do it. Folks, all along, there really isn't anything for us to do except to believe and to receive what he has promised. But there's going to be tests all the way through. Let me give you a great example of what I'm talking about. Go to Luke 22. You guys get a little lanyap that the Tuesday night group didn't get. Go to Luke chapter 22. Excuse me. Look at verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. 
So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Don't move. Don't read anymore. Don't read anymore. If you've read ahead, you're cheating. It came the day for the Passover, preparation for the Passover. Jesus sent Peter and John and says, go make preparations for us to eat the Passover. All right. Jesus looks you in the eye and says, go make preparations for the Passover. What would you do? You would go, wouldn't you? Well, we probably, all of us would, oh, Jesus said, go make preparations. I mean, we'd start thinking, all right, I need a caterer. Um, I'm, we're going to need, how many people is it going to be? And we would, we'd work hard, wouldn't we, to go get it done. Oh, look at the next verse. Peter and John don't move. See, they've been with him for three years. And they're finally starting to get it. And they said, where will you have us prepare it? Did you catch it? Oh, and then look what happens next. Jesus pretty much, I I picture Jesus winking at him and saying, good for you, you passed the test. You passed the test. He said, you're going to go into the city. And you're going to see a man carrying a jar of water. And he's going to meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. Tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. Isn't that cool? Folks, we miss out on so much because we try to go do for Jesus. I don't know if many of you are on committees or on ministry teams. And God may have given you an assignment and you trying to be good, faithful Christians and good stewards. And I hate that term because we don't even know what it means. But we get together and we sit around and we plan and we plot how we can do this. And I've come to realize every single time God wanted something done, he already had in mind how he wanted it done and where and by who. And if we would be willing to not go out and try to do it, but to say, Lord, how would you have us do it? You'll find it all falls into place and is empowered by him. That's how he wants us to live our lives. So when he said to them back in Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 30 through 32, cast away your sins and create a new heart and a new spirit, he had already shown them what he wanted. Back in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, the nation of Israel has been judged by God because of their sin, and their response is, what does he want us to do? Does, does he want us to offer calves of a year old, or maybe he wants us to offer a thousand rams or ten thousand rivers of oil? Maybe he wants us to sacrifice our firstborn, the fruit of our body, for the sin of our soul. And what does it say in verse 8? Many of you know it. He has shown you, O oh man, what does the Lord require? But to act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Here they are saying, what kind of sacrifices does he need us to do? What kind of works of the law do I have to do to get right with God? And he's going, I've already told you. Back in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, I told you to obey is better than sacrifice. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 9 and following, I've already told you, I'm not pleased with your sacrifices. I've got all these animals. I don't need you to offer me any more bulls. I just want you to walk with me. All the way through, listen to me, everything that God is expecting of us and wanting from us, he's already shown us ahead of time how to do it. I promise you, if you're willing to humble yourself and say, Lord, you have said this is what you want of me. Be holy for I'm holy. How? I'm not going to try to go be holy anymore. How? And he'll show you as he walks you through how to submit yourself on a daily basis 
Say no to your flesh and yes to the Spirit. And as you learn to walk with Him on a daily basis, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be holy. You're going to be holy. Go to John chapter 3. We'll close with this tonight. We're not going to read the beginning. You already know it's Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and he says, you know, we know you're from God or else no one could do the things you do unless God was with him. And then Jesus says, look, man can't see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Of course, Nicodemus says, this doesn't make any sense to me. Can a man enter his mother's womb? Jesus gets under his skin a little bit and says, you're Israel's teacher and you don't know these things. I love that. But look at chapter 3, verse 16 and following. By the way, Jesus plants a little more seed by saying, as Moses lived up the serpent in the wilderness, and he gives a picture of what's going to happen down the road. For God so loved the world, that's what he says in verse 16, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But don't miss this. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. If I do anything righteous... It's not because Jim's impressive. It's because Jesus did it. I'll use Mike as an illustration with me. Y'all, I, I knew, maybe you don't. I know Michael Kramer. You know Michael Kramer. If not, everybody, this is Mike. Wave to everybody, Mike. Mike, you still struggle with sin, don't you? Just like I do. But there's some days that you let Jesus take control. And you walk out of those instances and you know that wasn't me. But we have a tendency to say, man, what a great guy Mike is. You get it? We're messing up. No, Mike's not great. The reason Mike did good things is because Jesus is in. Remember when the disciples were filled with the Spirit and they started preaching and everybody said, these guys are acting like Jesus. They thought, these guys have been with Jesus. They didn't understand the filling of the Holy Spirit and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, but they all of a sudden realized that isn't those guys. And when people get to know each of us and we see good come out, those of us who know each other know that ain't you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And the same with me. That ain't me. I have a sister-in-law and she and I have one of those contentious for the fun relationships. We're always pushing each other's buttons. And she'll always say, I don't like you, except when you're preaching. Because when you're preaching, it's obvious that ain't you. <laughs> and I know you. Folks, everything that God wants of us, he's already shown us. And all of it points back to submitting ourselves on a daily, hourly basis to the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Saying, Lord, everything you ask of me, you said you would do. I have to just believe it and receive it by faith. And watch how he takes over as you let him. I love you. Don't forget, not next week. Two weeks from now, we'll be back together in chapter 19. Have a good one.